verses, we turn to Philippians chapter 2, wherein we find verses 5 through 11, a passage in Scripture that is often referred to as the Christ hymn. As we have the example in the New Testament of those who worshiped the Lord Jesus, we continue to worship him, not just honor him, not just respect him. Not just acknowledge his true identity, but in fact to worship him, for he is the Lord God Almighty. And as the early Christians sang to him, we also sing to him, which in itself is an act of worship. And so while the world may want to content itself with simply saying he was a great teacher, I've even heard him called a great philosopher or a great example, He certainly is those things. He's a great prophet. He is our prophet as he is our priest and our king. But there is none like Jesus. When you compare him to all of those in all the annals of history, there is none like Christ. So we worship him. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And as the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. And so we think of those who have been deemed great in history, or at least those who thought themselves to be great whether it's Napoleon Bonaparte or whether it's a Hitler or a Stalin, those who thought themselves great and yet turned out to be anything but. One of my favorite accounts of those who have been deemed great is one of our own presidents, Theodore Roosevelt, a man who had uh, amazing, amazing accomplishments in the course of his life, highly intelligent, highly capable. Here was a man who knew so much that when the Smithsonian Institute had a certain mammal sent to it that had already been uh, treated by taxidermists, they were unable to identify it. All of their scientists came together, and they didn't know what it was. And so they sent word over to the White House, and within 30 minutes, Roosevelt had sent back the name of the animal and on what page they could find all of its nomenclature in a scientific journal. He was brilliant. On uh, one occasion... The greatest of big game hunters, it was thought, who had been all over the continent of Africa, whose escapades were known in literature of the day, came to the White House to visit him. And Roosevelt had an audience with this man by himself. And those outside the door testified that they heard a conversation that was ongoing and many things being said. And when it was over, the great hunter came out and he was absolutely exhausted. And someone said, what all did you tell the president? And he said, I told him my name. (laughs) 
There are those who think themselves great. But when we open the pages of Scripture, we encounter true greatness in the person of Jesus Christ. And in most astounding fashion. First of all, Paul tells us in our text that we are to have something. We are to maintain something. Now, this isn't the stuff of modern day motivational speakers who will tell you how great you are and how wonderful you are and how astounding you are and how amazing you are. You don't have to be perfect to be amazing, they tell us. We see here an example of humility, one who made little of himself. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, the morphe of God, who being actually God, this is not some way of Paul linguistically communicating to us that Jesus was less than God, than God the Father is God. This is his way of saying he absolutely is God. For John the Apostle had testified that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this Word is that which became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He, being in this very form of God, being God Himself, nevertheless, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What we come to see here is that Jesus left behind unimaginable privilege by becoming one of us to rescue us. Now, many people have left behind things. All of us have in one way or another throughout the course of life. Many people have sacrificed things in order to achieve a goal. But what Jesus left behind, what he sacrificed, is unimaginable to us. We can't conceive of it. We can know what it's like to leave behind riches or family, friends, loved ones. But Jesus left behind all of the glories of heaven where he was worshipped and adored, where he, the Father and the Holy Spirit, had throughout all eternity enjoyed a glorious fellowship one with another. What we see and discern here is that he has always been and always continues to be God, even as he has become a man. Now, we know from mythology that there are those who claim something called apotheosis. That is the notion of a human becoming a god. The Greeks had that idea. In fact, there's an artistic depiction of this in our nation's capital. Strangely enough, oddly enough, if you're ever at the Capitol Rotunda, you're looking at all the statuary there, don't forget to stand in the middle and look up. And there, artistically depicted, there in the top of the rotunda is what's known as the apotheosis of George Washington. Washington would roll over in his grave if he knew it were there. It is the idea of Washington having completed his task on earth of being Revolutionary War leader and President of the United States, becoming a god in the Greek sense. It's there, I kid you not. That is not Jesus. Jesus' story is not one of apotheosis. It's not of a man becoming a God. It is how that God became a man, incarnation. And therein is good news. Because Jesus breached a gap that none of us, nor anyone, could ever breach. 
He bridged it for us. And so we also see that he refused to regard equality with God as something that he must cling to. That's what the text means when it says a thing to be grasped, not as if he were reaching toward it, but something he relinquished, something that he was willing to let go of. Not that he let go of being God, but he let go of all the privileges that go along with being the second person of the Trinity. He was willing to give that up for a time for our sakes. And we read on. It gets more astounding when we see how that the Lord Jesus endured the very bottom of humiliation. And how that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. As Dredonis, the commentator, writes, he laid aside his majesty and glory but remained God. He laid aside his majesty and glory. But remain God. Like someone in military with high rank who takes off his insignia. Like someone who has all the trappings of greatness and riches and powers. And, and shuts that aside and takes on the raiment of common folk. The Lord Jesus became one of us. As Linsky, respected commentator, says, even in the midst of his death, he had to be the mighty God in order... By his death to conquer death. You see, we wouldn't have a savior if Jesus ceased being God, if somehow he gave up his deity. When he emptied himself, he didn't give up being God. He emptied himself of all of those privileges that go with being God. And so this is extraordinary when we think in terms of his humility. Because as we look at his life, we ultimately must divide it into parts. There is, first of all, the humiliation which begins with his incarnation. When he is conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, suddenly the Creator, who is sovereign over all things, becomes susceptible to all the trials and travails of humanity, except without sin. Tempted and tried in every way, except without sin, the Bible declares. Jesus made himself susceptible to all the frailties, weaknesses, attacks, insults, diseases, Oftentimes when I think of the Christmas hymn that we sing away in a manger, no crying he makes. That can't be true. The little Lord Jesus cried. Surely he cried because he was hungry. And there was pain for the first time in all eternity. He knew things like hunger and pain and discomfort. We can't wrap our minds around that. But that was just the beginning. His whole life was one lived in humiliation. And that humiliation came to an anticlimax, if you will, when he ultimately is crucified on a cross. And then humiliation of humiliations when his body is laying in a grave. But Jesus willingly embraced submission and unprecedented humiliation for our sake. As James Montgomery Boyce has said, there was no depth to which Jesus did not go. At our lowest moments, and our most difficult times, we must understand and know this, that Jesus has gone to the deepest of depths in order to rescue us. Yeah, I'm 55 today. I finally made it to the speed limit. Somebody said that's a sign to me that I need to slow down. 
But, you know, I can remember so many times in the course of my life when I needed somebody to be there for me. I remember the time when I was following my older brother, Dan, five and a half years older than me, just so they'll know. Dan, I'm the baby, remember, the youngest. Following my brother, Dan, and his friend who were riding bicycles out the logging road from our house, up the hill and down the hill and turning a steep curve and playing like we were evil Knievel, jumping 14 buses or whatever else he jumped at Madison Square Garden, forgetting that he broke every bone in his body when he jumped there. I didn't break every bone in my body, but I didn't make the right-hand turn coming down off of that last hill, and I sailed right over the ledge into a multifloral rosebush. Now, if you don't know what a multifloral rosebush is, we have those things in the mountain because the first lady of the United States, Lady Bird Johnson, determined that our highways needed to be decorated with something, and they thought that would be a good thing to do it. And so they set these things out in the medians of the highways everywhere. And birds picked up the seeds and dropped them all over our pastures so that those things grew up and took over everything. You know, it's one of those things that we often talk about. It seemed like a good thing at the time. And there I was flat in the middle of one, unable to extricate myself. Yelling. And I don't know where he came from. But all I know is I looked up and there was my daddy. Right there in the middle of the briars. Pulling them back with his bare arms to get his boy out of trouble once again. Now, I'd like to tell you that's the worst part of the story. The worst part of the story actually occurred afterwards when my mother, who is a registered nurse, applied alcohol to all those cuts and scratches on my body. But the good news is there was no infection. Couldn't survive that treatment. He came right in there where I was and pulled me out. Don't you see that's what we're being told in this passage, that the Lord Jesus went to the lowest depths in order to rescue us because that's precisely where we are. We're in the deepest and the lowest of depths. And no one, no one could come to that level. No one could come into that briar patch and extricate us from the mess we'd gotten ourselves in. That's what Jesus has done for us. And so in humility, he was willing to lay aside everything and and all of the privilege that he had. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that he or that we might become the righteousness of God. We are now in a position of privilege because the Son of Man gave up his privilege to put us in this place. Alistair Begg. In a part of a sermon that's pretty much gone viral on the internet, talks about how that the gospel has everything to do with what Jesus has done. You know, if somebody ever asks you the question, if you were to die today, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? And if you were to die today and you were in heaven and you were standing before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And Pastor Begg says, if we begin that statement with I, we have missed the point. I have done or I believed. He said, think of the thief on the cross who at one moment was hurling insults and cursing 
the Lord Jesus. But then, in a moment of light, in a moment of grace, he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. He said, can you imagine this thief, this man who cursed and insulted the Lord, standing before the angel in heaven, and the angel says, what are you doing here? The man said, I, I don't know. He said, obviously this is uh, mythological. He said, uh, well, what can you tell me? What, what passage of Scripture have you memorized? Scripture? Well, do you know about justification by faith? Never heard of it. What about the four spiritual laws? The what? Why are you here? The man on the middle cross told me I could come. Don't you see? He came to accomplish what we never could in order that we might have what we never could have achieved. All because he came to the lowest of depths. And astoundingly, the Bible tells us that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. The one who has all knowledge, the one who is omniscient, as we say, learned obedience. That's the depths to which the Lord Jesus was willing to go. Wherein he humbled himself, not only by becoming one of us, and not only by becoming a servant, remembering now that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How that we read here, emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Obedience, submission, not because of inequality with God, but because he willingly submitted himself to the Father. That, by the way, and this is extra, that, by the way, is our pattern for marriage as we look at Ephesians chapter 5, when we see God's plan for the home, in which oftentimes husbands will want their wives to read that passage where it says, wives, submit yourselves to the husband as to the Lord. But they skip over the part that the husband is to submit to the Lord. We've got a lot more responsibility, husbands, than wives. But the reason is not because of inequality. The Lord Jesus Christ is equal in power and glory with the Father. It's that for the purpose of redemption, he willingly submitted himself to the Father's will. And so that for the purpose of life and living and marriage, there is that willing submission. He is our ultimate example. Both husbands and wives, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, all of us are to have that mind in us. And humbling himself all the way to the point of the cross. You see, Jesus, who had great riches, took upon himself great poverty. Think of it. Throughout the course of his life, he was borrowing things. The manger in which he was laid in Bethlehem was borrowed. He had to borrow a boat. He had to borrow a place to sleep. He had to borrow a house. Even the supper that he gave to us on the night in which he was betrayed, they had to borrow a room and they had to borrow a donkey for him to ride into town on prior to that. Everything throughout the course of his life was borrowed. And, and amazingly, 
Amazingly, not only did he take those things for his use, but he takes upon himself our indebtedness. How much more impoverished than that can you get? When he takes upon himself that which he had not earned, but in taking upon himself our debt, he gives us in exchange his riches. You're not going to find any story like this in any sort of literature anywhere in the world. There is no greater news as we contemplate what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And so, having endured all of that, even the cross, which remember, remember how horrible is the notion of the cross. Cicero, writing to his fellow Romans, said, Let the very name of the cross be far removed, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. Jesus endured that. (laughs) That was Friday. Sunday came. And so Jesus is now not just exalted, but Paul coins a word that is not found anywhere else in all of the Bible. Not just exalted. Jesus is super exalted. Raised to the loftiest heights. And that begins with his resurrection. So, by man came death, by man comes also resurrection from the dead. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Highly exalted, super exalted. We read in Hebrews, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Oh, what a glorious Savior we have. And don't you see that on this Resurrection Sunday, we're commemorating that great act which begins his exaltation? For as I say, that the bottom, the very depth of his humiliation was his being under the power of death for three days and his body remained in the grave. But with his resurrection, exaltation begins. And as he is raised for all to see, so also he ascends. And not only does he ascend, But he is enthroned in glory in that great coronation wherein he is seated at the right hand of the Father. But that's not the end of the story either. For not only is he enthroned and crowned and seated because his work is finished, he will return. And so we see that Jesus as Lord will be universally acknowledged and worshipped. Universally acknowledged and worshipped. Everybody, everywhere will bow the knee and will proclaim him to be Lord. There will be those who do it willingly and joyfully, having repented of sins and trusted in him in this life, and others will be forced to do it begrudgingly. Satan and his minions and unbelievers everywhere throughout the course of time will find themselves standing before the Lord Jesus. For on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God, having exalted him, bestowed on him that name that is above every name. Yes, there is the name Jesus. But the name of names comes later as he speaks of knees bowing and tongues confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Kyrios. Jesus is Lord. The earliest stated creed that we have in Christendom where Christians came together, and the whole rest of the world was saying, Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. 
And Christians met together and said no. No one on earth has that title except Jesus and him only. And they were willing to go to the stake and they were willing to face the lions and the beasts and the arenas. And they were willing to be burned alive in Nero's court because Jesus is Lord. Because a ragtag group of individuals in Jerusalem once upon a time saw a man who had been crucified, dead and buried, rise up out of the grave and their lives were transformed ever after. Don't ever lose sight of the fact that those early Christians followed the Lord Jesus because they genuinely believed he had been raised from the dead. Even skeptics today in my own state of North Carolina, that notorious skeptic Bart Ehrman has held forth at UNC Chapel Hill now for years. Who's written hogwash against the New Testament. That's what I called it. Intelligent hogwash, but it nevertheless is what it is. Even he begrudgingly admits that those early Christians followed Jesus because they believed he had been raised from the dead. And all this literature was written at a time when if anyone wanted to debunk it, all they needed to do was get a few witnesses out of Jerusalem and say, hey, never happened. I saw the body. It stayed there. No witnesses. No evidence. Except an empty tomb. Grave cloths left lying there because... A resurrected Savior came forth. Angels there at the tomb to bear witness. Having rolled a stone away. Not to let him out. <laughs> he didn't have to let him out. Don't, don't ever think that. They opened the grave so that those witnesses could look in and see that he's not there. And you know what? Because they said he is not here, we are able to say he is here, and we rejoice. Christian, he has a name that is above every name. And we, by virtue of faith, yielding our lives to him and trusting in him, in due time shall be exalted. Oh, not like Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but we will reign with him in glory. His victory is our victory. And I will say to you again, no one, no one has ever done for you what Jesus has done. No one will ever accomplish for you what Jesus has accomplished. And if you know him, you have everything. Let the world criticize. Let friends and neighbors and family scoff at what you profess. We pray for their conversion. We pray that their eyes will be open. We pray that they may see who Jesus is. But in the meantime, we have the greatest, most glorious treasure that the world has ever known. Because everything we know and all that we hope to be is tied to this one man who rose from the grave on the third day of the week. And we ever live to give him praise. Blessed is our Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. His is the name that is above every name. And so we sing to him and we worship him. We adore him and we love him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, blessed is the name of Jesus. As we yield ourselves to you, we acknowledge here before the whole world that Jesus lives and our God reigns. May our testimony be born throughout this community, this state, this nation, and the world. That we may see, Father, 
because of your great power, untold numbers of men and women and boys and girls of every walk of life coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus, that we will find ourselves in the midst of that great number which no man can number, one day calling out with all of heaven, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and power and riches and glory. For Jesus lives. We acknowledge to you. He is great and greatly to be praised. In his name we pray. Amen. Our God reigns. Let's stand as we sing.
Amen. May grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be with and abide with you all both now and forevermore. And everyone said together, Amen. Amen.